and welcome to the Joe Rest Podcast, episode 16, recorded on the evening of the 17th of September 2015. I'm Joe, and with me, I'm afraid, is no one today. But um, this is actually part two of a two-part series where Isaac and I spoke to Ben Emlyn Jones. So that's why I'm doing it on my own. I didn't even ask Isaac if he was around because we didn't really need to do a proper episode for this. I won't spend too much time rambling on, but uh, just to say, if you haven't heard part one, which was episode 15 of the Joe Rest podcast, then go back and listen to that first because this won't really make that much sense. We spoke to Ben for over two hours, so I decided to split it into two because I just thought it would be a bit overwhelming to have it all in one. So yeah, do listen to that one first, but if you have already heard that, it's surprising. I've had quite a few people asking me, when's the next one? When's the next one? And I've been really busy, but well, here you go. Finally, here it is. Part two of Ben Emlyn Jones, and we start off with quite a contentious subject. So uh, here we go. What is your take, Ben, on uh, global warming? Because that's like the current biggest thing I can think of in my head, or there's a whole movement of skeptics and a whole movement of people that believe it. So what is your take, your stance on this? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm actually I'm suspicious of the the, the mainstream position. I must say uh, that it's it's caused by carbon dioxide emissions. I don't consider the environment the, the the environment in which this the climate science is done nowadays is so politically charged that I, I really am very very questionable questionable of the things that like the International Panel on Climate Change comes out with. What does bother me, I think, most of all, is that climate ch- so much authoritarian legislation is being brought in on the back of climate change for, for reasons of climate change. And um, there's actually documents from the past um, which actually point out that there, there are plans in advance to actually use the threat of environmental damage as an excuse, essentially, to, to, to bring in authoritarian international government. So uh, that's, it's a big subject, you know, going into details, but I mean, that really, that's really how I feel about it at the moment. Uh, no, forgive me, Ben, but are you old enough to remember when they talked about the coming ice age? I do recall something about that. I think maybe when I was at the Science Museum, when I was a kid, they were talking about the ice age that's approaching. Things that Earth's climate does change. It gets warmer, it gets colder. In fact, um, the Romans, when the Romans were here 2,000 years ago, they had vineyards. And there was, these were right up in Cumbria, what's now Cumbria and Northumberland, right up by Hadrian's Wall. Where today it's freezing cold, even in midsummer. <laughs> There's this huge wall built across the north of England. It's the, it's the border of the old Roman Empire. And there were vineyards right up against that wall. And as you said, it's, it's, a, it's a really miserable place. The climate there is very, very it's mild and it's very, very wet. You can't grow grapes in that kind of environment. So when there were no climate records 2,000 years ago, but we, the truth of the matter is that we must have had a much warmer climate than this today. In order to, so climate is always changing. There's the medieval warm period as well. We know that Admiral Zheng Hu, the, the famous Chinese explorer, he took his ship right up to the Bering Straits when in, in the ninth century, which is when we know the sea would normally be completely covered with ice today. Yeah, he managed to get his ship up there. Uh, we know that the, the, the people prospered enormously during the, the, the medieval warm period. We built cathedrals. What you have now, we say, well, it's different now. We say this is, this is man-made warming because of carbon emissions. The thing about it is, any scientist who disagrees with that, it doesn't matter how calm they are and, and collected they are, they're drummed out of their job and they're kicked out into the streets and they're ridiculed. People like Dr. David Bellamy, who was a, he was a pop scientist in this country. 
Do you remember Dave Bellamy? Get up a gum tree. Yeah, uh, I remember as a kid, he was on TV and he was a bit of a character talking about a massive herd of wildebeest and, you know, yeah. he, he, pop, populist scientist, you know, it's akin to um, well, maybe a bit more of a, a comedic character, but similar to uh, David Attenborough, you know, yeah. pre- presenting nature shows and stuff. And then he just, he disappeared overnight, didn't he? He was extremely enthusiastic and, and very, very lovable TV character. He did many, many TV series, like you said. Um, and he was popular, especially with children. Then he came out and, and said, look, I don't think this climate change is real and man-made climate change. And this is why he, he put across uh, his reasons for thinking that. And he, he was chairman of the Slimbridge Wildfowl Trust. He was sacked from that. Um, he was sacked from several other organizations he was a part of. He went to Australia to... to uh, for a sort of reunion of these various environmental activists, because he was—he is an environmental activist. He wants to see an end to environmental destruction. People wouldn't even speak to him. They spat on him. They hurled abuse at him. Well, can I offer a, a simple explanation for that? Is it not that he was an embarrassment to the scientific community who have come to a scientific consensus based on actual evidence and study and experts in the field that anthropogenic climate change is real and is happening? And he was just an embarrassment to that. And so it's sort of only logical that the scientific community would excommunicate him. Well, I mean, you call me a sentimental idealist, but um, I have a feeling that if you, if you have a scientific consensus that's brought about by evidence through proper scientific study, you don't need to, to hurl abuse, excommunicate and destroy the careers and good name of people who disagree with you. Your ideas should be able to stand on their own without the need to silence opposition in that brutal way. But what about things like um, vaccines? There, there is a strong scientific consensus that vaccines on the whole are a very good idea. We've eradicated things like polio as a result of vaccinations. And that people like, um, is it uh, that Jenny woman in America? Uh, Jenny McCarthy. Yeah, yeah, Jenny McCarthy are potentially harming people by coming out and with based on no evidence whatsoever saying that they cause autism and that vaccines are poisonous and full of mercury. Um, if you're going to say potentially dangerous things like uh, climate change isn't real, we don't need to do anything about it. Let's just burn all the fossil fuels we want and, um, you know, just continue as normal. I mean, doesn't it make sense that you would be ridiculed and, you know, attacked strongly because it's climate change is, esoteric in the truest sense of the word only a few people really understand the evidence because the evidence is so complicated it it requires you know geology and climate science and you know it's it's stuff that the average person on the street certainly i have no idea how to interpret that evidence so you have to rely on people who are experts in the field but if it's true that humans are causing climate change by burning too many fossil fuels and I believe that, and I understood the evidence for that, then I think I would um, attack people who spoke out, you know, ignorantly against it, uh, you know, saying that, oh, everything's fine, don't worry, because that's a very dangerous position to be in. Well, I mean, I certainly would, dis- if, if I felt that way, I certainly would debate with that person. I'd politely, uh, but firmly inform them they were wrong, and I'd explain why they were wrong. But wouldn't you kick them out of your club if, if you were, uh, you know, if uh, you were... Well, I suppose podcasting is different because it's all about different opinions. But, you know, say you're in the hospital and someone says, um, oh, well, I don't believe in these drugs that are tried and tested. Let's just do voodoo instead. Uh, You know, let's kind of dance around and use these spells and herbs. Um, Surely you'd want to kick that person out of the hospital because they are uh, dangerous to the patients. 
Well, in a clinical situation, yes, I mean, you would, but if we're talking here about sort of really abstract research. But are we not talking about a clinical situation with the Earth? You know, we're talking about the future of human civilization on the Earth. It's very important, isn't it? Well, I suppose the thing about Bellamy is Bellamy would never ever said, let's just go out and burn all the fossil fuels we can. Come on, let's go, let's go and deplete the oil reserves and pour it into the atmosphere. He never said that. He, ne- he never suggested that at all. In fact, I think he's quite keen on renewables. He's quite, for, for, for various other reasons. And that the pollution that, um, that burning fossil fuels causes, if not, not carbon dioxide, but I mean, the other things in them that gets into the atmosphere and causes breathing problems for people, for children and things like that. Um, and it's, and essentially, to, 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 um, to take an analogy back to what you were talking about, in a hospital, if, if a doctor happened to believe in voodoo and other things, in, in a situation where ne- action needed to be taken, as long as he does his job properly according to his proper training, it wouldn't matter what he actually believed privately. Well, it shouldn't anyway. I mean, <laughs> ideally it shouldn't. Of course, it does matter. But, um, well, yeah, I mean, doctors who believe in homeopathy, for example, I mean, that, that to me is clearly nonsense. I mean, you, uh, potentially you might disagree with me there. Homeopathy is, does seem implausible um, when you consider the It seems absolutely ridiculous, doesn't Although, it? I mean, unless there's, a, there's an element to it we're missing I mean, in terms of um, how it works. If you, on, on, if you take into account the sort of function, if you, if you say that homeopathy drugs, for instance, function by active ingredients, then obviously then that's nonsense. But if it's, if it's something different in a sense like, the memory of water and stuff like that. Maybe that's a different matter. But I mean, there are actually doctors like uh, Dr. Peter Fisher, who is a homeopath. In fact, Prince Charles is one of his patients. But I, I, I think I would feel more confident. I, I mean, I think the public, not just me, but other members of the public, would feel more confident if this this witch hunting didn't go on. People like, uh, well, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, for example. Not Jenny McCarthy's never been a doctor, uh, but she's. Uh, but um, Dr. Andrew Wakefield was a doctor, and he was kicked out of his job for what he said about the MMR vaccine. He may be right, he may be wrong, but I think if if he'd be, if it'd been dealt with differently, I'd feel more confident that he was wrong. Well, you know, studies, you know, proper studies have been, you know, have, have taken place and proved that there is absolutely no link whatsoever between the uh, MMR vaccine and autism, or at least that's the official story. Are, are you saying that perhaps the official story you know, in the same way you say that the official story of nine eleven and stuff isn't true. Are you saying that perhaps there is a potential link there then? Yeah, I think possibly. I mean, I've, I've looked at both. Like I said, it's always important to look at both sides of every issue. So if I look at, um, if, I, if I read something about vaccines or climate change, I will look at the other side of the story. So I've got a copy of Mark Linus's book. I've not read it yet, but he's written a book about climate change from the, from the official perspective. Um, He's written a book called uh, Six Degrees, which is about the official story of climate change, and it's an attempt to tackle climate change deniers, as we're called. Um, so I, I think all you could, as you say, the science is extremely complicated. You know, it's it's impossible for the layman to know everything. So you just have to read the popular literature on both sides to make a judgment. But I mean, there's no doubt about it. I think the the, the fact alone that the brutality with which naysayers are treated, it goes beyond mere practicalities. It is, it is malicious, truly malicious. And the fact that that kind of intellectual environment exists makes me wonder about whether true science can even be done according to the ideals of the scientific method. Well, not to mention the business interests, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the fact that the response to man-made climate change is big business, isn't it? With, um, you know, carbon offsetting, 
and um, you know moves to very expensive re- renewable energy, and indeed what appears to be the only practical solution to climate change is nuclear energy. Oh, the nuclear power lobby are enormously are really taking advantage of the IPCC. They're always there um, trying to set up new reactors and places. Um, they're going to bring new ones in here um, into Britain. I mean, as far as alternatives, I mean, en- the energy system, it's a big subject, but I mean, the energy, the, the energy issue is, is soluble. We're going on to a different topic here. It is soluble for the, the declassification of free energy. Yeah, now free energy, I hear a lot about this in the kind of tinfoil hat land and i hear about nikola tesla and how he was a genius and he potentially harnessed um you know lightning for want of a better word you know the electromagnetic energy that's happening in the stratosphere um and he was silenced and there you know there have since been a lot of people who claim free energy but you know i've never seen any evidence of it um in you know with my own eyes i've never powered my laptop with any free energy it's all cost a mere fortune mm. so is that just nonsense or has it been suppressed i think it has been suppressed i mean the, the reasons for it are again they're, they're political and economic about the fact that the the, con- the centralized control of energy and the use of fossil fuels um is, is it does seem to be quintessential for maintaining political power of, of, of the structures in the world today uh, for, for, for long, many complicated reasons, but they uh, they are now a good example. Uh, in terms of suppression, it does go on. Um, there are many examples. The best one, the most recent one, is probably one of the most recent is cold fusion. Have you heard of cold fusion? Yeah, I mean that's the dream, isn't it? If we could get cold fusion working, then that would solve all of our energy problems. We'd have effectively free, unlimited energy. Yeah, I mean there was, there was a big news in 1989. There was a massive uh, news storm for a couple mm. of weeks. Uh, two scientists, uh, Stanley Pons and Martin Fleischmann, claim to have c- created fusion at room temperature, which is now nuclear fusion is, is, a, is a way of taking simple, simply one of the ingredients of, of common water. So it's, it's a virtually infinite source of this energy uh, and putting it through this process where the, the nuclei are fused together to release a massive amount of energy, far more than nuclear fission, which is what you get from in a conventional nuclear reactor where uh, heavy metals are treated till they become cri- into critical mass where they start splitting apart. The atoms start splitting apart. This is the atoms being fused together. Now, this is this can only be done. Um, it's never been really done properly, practically, um, because the engineering, the engi- we know it works, but the engineering obstacles are huge, and you need like a tokamak. Yeah, the energy required to do it is such that you you get uh, slightly less than you put into it. Or, oh, yeah. But, you know, or the, I think there may have been experiments where they managed to get a tiny, tiny, you know, a couple yeah. of joules more. You know, they they put mega gigajoules into it and got gigajoules plus one or two out of it. But it's yeah, that, that's right. It actually happened here in, in near Oxford at Cullum, where they managed to get a tiny little bit out of one reaction. But but generally, they you, you put in far more energy because you've got to put it in this tokamak, this giant, huge vessel where you heat up this gas to 100 million degrees and things like that. Now what? Splons and Fleischmann were doing was they said, oh, we've done it very easily. We've done it in a test tube, basically, using schoolboy science, electrolysis. Um, now, there's a massive media storm over this. Um, now, what they actually observed was first noticed in 1926. They were just rediscovering something that had already been done before. Well, it was called the anomalous heat effect. But what happened was um, there was this big um, attempt to reproduce the experiment in laboratories all around the world. And then two weeks later or so, they said, sorry, it was all a big mistake. See ya. Go back to sleep, everyone. No, no. Now, um, 
I, I, there's evidence to suggest there's a, there's a video called um, Heavy Watergate, which talks about this in detail. The, the actual process was actually was sabotaged by someone who got involved early on. Pons and Fleischmann in, enlisted the help of a publicist called Stephen E. Jones. And he was involved in, um, basically he said, oh, forget, don't publish in the magazine, I'll get, you the, I'll get the press in. Things like that. It's a long story, but basically he undermined the whole process. Before you know it, it was, it was safely back in the box again. The genie was back in the bottle. Well, so you're saying that these two fellas actually did it then, and that yeah. it was covered up? Yeah. The, 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 the thing is, it wasn't nuclear fusion. It was Stephen E. Jones's idea to call it cold fusion. Call it cold fusion. And then everyone has to search for like neutron emissions from the, from, the, from the liquid. If you don't find the neutron emissions, it's not fusion, so it's not working. The thing about it is, it was working, but it just wasn't nuclear fusion. It was something else. It was the anomalous heat effect. Well, what is that? I mean, do you, do you understand the science of that? Can you explain it briefly? No. What, what, what you do is, I, I know a little bit because I, I know about electrolysis. I, you do it when you're a little kid at school. Um, you, put these, um, you put these electrodes into a, a, a pool of liquid and you run an electric current through it. And you get like a, you can have an electrochemical reaction in the liquid. Yeah, you can split the liquid. I mean, the, yeah. the classic one, you know, getting hydrogen out and salt on the other one or whatever. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you can produce, you can split water, the, the molecules of water into hydrogen and oxygen. Oh, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. It's quite dangerous, that, because you can actually. Yeah, you can it, have explosions. Yeah. Yeah, so you can't, it's dangerous to do it with water. But this was with um, deuterium, which is um, not known as heavy water, which is a, a, a particular, it's an isotope of hydrogen. Yeah. And it looks like water, but it's slightly heavier, which is why it's called heavy water. Uh, it's used in fusion, uh, fusion reactions, things like that. And they were actually getting this anomalous heat effect. And you can actually see it as it's light, the, the surface is bubbling, it's boiling because it's so hot. Um, from these palladium cathodes, which they put into the liquid. And um, how it's done, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what it is, the anomalous heat effect, what causes it. I'm not sure. But do you get more energy out than you put in? Well, yeah, I mean, you get, in, you get a massive amount of heat out, which is a lot of energy. Yeah. We could, you, so, you, I mean, Pons and Fleischmann put it, they, they, they said it was fusion, basically because Jones was, was egging them along. Because in their, in their classical, they were chemists, they weren't physicists. But they, they believed that nuclear fusion was the only known process that could actually produce that kind of, um, that kind of difference in um, energy ratio. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're just extracting the energy from... The, the various parts of the experiment from the the water, the heavy water um, and the, the cathode and anode that you're putting into it. So, I mean, mm. the question there is uh, how much energy does it take to uh, either produce or acquire the, the relevant parts of that? And do you get more energy out of it than you have spent to collect those things together? And logic would say probably not. I mean, it might be, it might be more efficient than, you know, digging up oil and refining it and making that into petrol and diesel and you know aviation fuel and stuff but um it, it doesn't sound like free energy to me necessarily i mean the only way to know that for sure for sure is actually to test how much energy you're actually getting out of the reaction and to do that i mean you could rig it you could actually heat a boiler with it and just run it through a dynamo and let, run it through a, a turbine let the turbine spin a dynamo and see if you get if you get more current out than you put in through the uh, through the cathodes mm. through the electrodes i mean that's one way you can do it yeah, I suppose. Well, I mean, so. it never came. It never came to that, unfortunately, because it was basically shut down within two weeks. The whole thing. But I mean, free energy is a big subject. Are there other examples then of potentially free energy? Yes, I mean, another example is the work of Dr. Judy Wood. Uh, we talked about her earlier over nine eleven. Um, she has been studying the work of a Canadian inventor called John Hutchison, 
And she believes that um, the weapon that was used to destroy the World Trade Center is based on um, something. It may be parallel. It may not be Hutchison's research as such. It may be it may be a kind of parallel uh, research program. It may be connect. It may be something they salvaged from crashed flying saucers. It may be something that one of these inventors created many many years earlier. But um, this uh, is something that was used as a weapon, um, and it's um, ele electrical interference. It's caused by electrical interference. You get a massive release of energy through a certain electrical interference pattern. And, of course, that, could, that of course could be weaponized. It could be used as a terrible destructive force. Or it could be used um, to produce energy. If it was used to produce energy, then, of course, it would... Oh, the energy... <laughs> you could forget fossil fuels, forget everything. We've got as much energy as we need forever. But, of course, so if it's classified, if it's, if it's part of the black budget, it's part of the breakaway civilization, whatever you choose to call them, then the average person in the street's not going to get it. We still have to keep paying our electric bills and filling up at the pump. Well, you mentioned UFOs there. I do definitely want to come back to that, you know, aliens and uh, that, that sort of thing. But before we talk about that, I remember as a little kid looking up at the sky and seeing planes flying around. And, uh, you know, I'd say to my dad, what's that white thing coming behind it? And he'd say to me, that's a vapor trail. I'm like, oh, okay, what's that? And uh, he didn't know the answer. You know, subsequently, I've learned that it is um, essentially water vapor because when aviation fuel burns, you get a bit of carbon dioxide and you get water. And I remember this, um, seeing these planes and seeing them fly along and this big long trail behind it. And I remember roughly at the same rate that it was flying forward and it was being created, this vapor trail, it would be dispersing at the other end, you know, far along the, the other end of the sky. Now, I don't know whether that is a true memory or confabulation. Who knows? It was a long, long time ago, and I've uh, abused my brain heavily since. But supposing that was true, if I look at the sky now and I see planes flying around, granted, I live quite near Heathrow Airport, so there are more of them. But I look at them and I see these vapor trails. And they don't disappear. It seems that they just linger in the air. And then sometimes you even see grid patterns or what looks like grid patterns of them. And what I'm getting at is what tinfoil hat people refer to as chemtrails. Now, Ben, you're a little bit older than me. Does that ring true? Uh, you know, have you ever thought about those things? Yeah, this is the chemtrail phenomenon we're talking about here. Um, now, I, I, obviously, I mean, I was born into the... I think most people, unless you're very old now, were born into the age when jet aircraft exist. Like I say, childhood memories are always a bit vague. But what you, what you mean is that a lot of people have noticed that um, over the years, at some point, you started getting these trails which were, as you said, they don't disperse. They seem to spread out. They seem to thicken almost until you get like almost like a, a cloud. It can be dozens of miles wide and hundreds of miles long. And... Um, now we're told that this is a condensation trail. It's basically, as you said, it's 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 hot air coming out the jet engine mixed with, mixed with soot from the fuel. Basically, the particulates in the in the soot cause clouds to form, and so it's kind of an artificial cloud. Oh, is that what I thought it was? That aviation fuel, um, but for, forms water vapor because I know petrol and diesel form water vapor. Well, if you yeah, if you breathe, if it's right when you breathe out on a cold day, you'll get water vapor from your breath. Yeah, come out of your breath. Um, what they're saying is that these uh, these aircraft are basically doing the same thing. 
Now, that's true. I mean, you do get condensation trials, but like all condensation, it, it, it evaporates when the heat's gone and it's, it just turns, the water then turns back into, um, turns back into vapor, which it doesn't condense. Well, what you get with these chemtrails is that it's, a completely, it's something completely different. You get a, a, a trail which spreads out, thickens, sometimes it changes shape because you get wind shear off it, but it can block out the sun. I mean, it, it, it's so thick, these things, just one of them can, will reduce the sun. You get like a hazy sunshine. This happened the other day. I was walking along and like this, this the sun went behind a chem, behind a chemtrail and it, it did darken the sun. And so I'm, I'm concerned that this is something artificial. This is something being done deliberately for some reason. And, um, again, there's the theory to back it up. There's been programs, it's been suggested for a long time that this should, that this should be done anyway. It's been suggested by several organisations. It ties into climate change, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, the well, the reason being proposed, the reasons for the people, the official story of why it needs to be done, is uh, it's to alleviate climate change. But they call it solar radiation management by reducing the power of the sun as it, as it hits the Earth by making the atmosphere more hazy. It cools the Earth down. It acts as a kind of sunshade for the Earth. And this happens naturally when volcanoes erupt, for instance. Whenever, whenever you get a big, if you get a huge volcanic eruption somewhere, it'll actually reduce the Earth's temperature for a couple of years. When Mount St. Helens blew up in 1980 or something, the Earth's temperature dropped by about four degrees for about five years. But um, the thing that is, it's called geoengineering. And the, if you go to Oxford, it's actually centered in Oxford, this whole thing, at a place called the Oxford Martin School, where you can actually do a course in geoengineering. Now, officially, geoengineering is just theoretical. It's not actually being done uh, to as a as a kind of like practical thing now. It's not actually. It's just being done. Well, what if we need to work out how to do it? If we ever get the chance to do it, but supposing it's going on secretly. Supposing it's at some point, some higher up, somebody has said, "Look, we've got to do this." And the human, you know, human race is just far too decadent for us to put it through Parliament. They'd never hand it. So let's, let's just do it secretly and hope they don't notice. That's why. That's my concern. So you think that it is going on then? Yeah, I think it's. Based on what I've seen so far, I'd say something suspicious is going on, yeah. So do you think that it is as simple as uh, geoengineering? Because I've heard people talk about, and I've read articles about chemtrails being spreading chemicals for the population to breathe in, you know, and all sorts of wild theories about whether it's mind control or mm. diseases. It's possible. If, if this is going on as part of um, some project, it's possible that some of the people involved lower down will be told it's, it's to do with climate change. It's a secret project related to climate change. But the actual project at a higher level, so it's a secret within a secret, at a higher level it may have a completely different purpose, especially if, as we were saying, climate change is not, that man-made climate change is, is, a, is a falsehood. Um, now, one of the uh, possibilities is, is connected to HARP. Now, HARP, H-A-A-R-P, High Altitude Oral Research Project is a system where they're putting a large amount of electrical energy into the ionosphere of the Earth. There's these massive electrical aerials, these transmitters that put massive amounts of energy. And it's, it's close to the North Pole. There's one in Alaska, there's one in Norway. And together they put these, this energy into the Earth. Now, um, <clears throat> what the idea is that this, the, the, actual, uh, the actual material being dumped in the atmosphere by, by these, these chemtrail operations is actually an electrical conductor for HARP, so that it's actually part of that same project. That's one of the theories. Another theory is it's biological organisms of some kind, some form of biological warfare or some way of changing the biological structure of the Earth. That's another theory. 
it sounds like there are a lot of theories. Is there any actual evidence to suggest it, it could be, you know, one of these, you know, or, or is it just speculation? There's been some chemical analysis done um, on areas where after, after a lot of chem trailing has been done. There's a guy in America who's actually tested, say, rainwater after there's been a large amount of chemtrails, and he's found certain chemicals in it that are not present at times when there's not a large amount of chemtrailing. There's also uh, living organisms, cell-like structures as well, um, that look like cells, living cells. That's another thing that's sometimes found in these, uh, in these experiments. Living cells? What, bacteria or, and things like that? Yeah, like your cells, or body cells, or bacteria, or archaea, which is another type of um, life. That's another thing. People say they found archaea. Um, but we resemble archaea. Surely that could just be contamination of the samples, though. Well, it's possible. I mean, the, the experiments obviously need to be repeated and, and checked over to, to, to be verified. Mm. But I mean, um, several people have done these, and they've done it. Um, they've, they've done it like they've done control samples when there's been no chemtrails around, and they've got different results. Another analysis, is, which is a work in progress, is independent monitoring of air traffic. Now, we all know that air traffic, there's air traffic control, which um, controls where aircrafts, aircraft travel on a single database. So they have a database, and there's an air traffic control system which tells them where to go. Now, you, if you get a flight radar, you, you get it as an app on your mobile phone, and you can, you can watch the planes flying over. Mm, yeah, I've seen that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, some people have noticed, there's a lady in North, North London, actually, who's been doing this for a long time, and she's noted some of the aircraft that fly over which are not actually on the flight radar. These could be military aircraft or they could be something else. This is a work in progress. There's a guy called Andrew Johnson who's working on this as well. I mean, the problem is that one person in one part of the country can't do it on their own because you look up in the sky, you can only see so far. You can only see to the horizon. You need a network of people across a wide area doing it together to actually independently monitoring all air traffic. Uh, there's a guy called Andrew Johnson who's made an attempt at this with the help of some people to actually independently monitor all their traffic. He's got some prelim preliminary results in that seem to indicate there are actually uh, variations in air tra tra traffic when chemtrailing is going on. Do you know what's very interesting is uh, part of the apparatus that Andrew Johnson uses to monitor chemtrails and traffic monitoring is actually the Raspberry Pi, which is uh, something that Isaac and I do a podcast about. <laughs> uh oh. The circle completes. Yeah. <laughs> you could always offer to help him out, be part of the network. Well, I'd like to talk to him. I mean, it'd certainly be a bit uh, out of the ordinary. I don't know uh, how it would go down with it. He might be as a guest on the show as well if you do these, uh, these, these podcasts. And yeah, he maybe. Might be a guest on the show as well, like I have been. Yeah, maybe. Ben, is there any conspiracy theory or phenomenon that you wish the public knew more about that they have no idea about? All of them. <laughs> can you? Can you? I, was gonna, I knew you were going to say all of them. Is there any way you can one in particular, or maybe a couple? What's the key one? You know, what is the key one that potentially opens the door to all of the others? I think they're all connected in some way. I mean, the UFO issue, I think, is very important. Um, oh, there, there are so many. I mean, the. Um, I mean, I'm I'm quite involved in the dis disclosure movement, exopolitics, and things like that. I do. I mean, I'm very very focused on that. There's no, I'm, I'm kind of a thing about me is I'm kind of a jack of all trades. I don't have a speciality, unlike some researchers. So I can't actually um, maybe indicate so, one particular one. Do you do you have a book out, or have you wrote any books before? I've written two books. Yeah, um, they're fictional. Uh, the first one's rubbish. Should take no note. It's called Evansland. It's rubbish. Uh, but the second one I'm still quite proud of. It's called Rockall, 
and it does address some of the issues that I I talk about on the blog and the on the panel and the videos and things like that and the radio shows. Um, you can actually read Rockall for free. It's on Ben's bookcase, which is linked on the Hapanwo. Um, you go to the Hapanwo website, and there's a link to Ben's bookcase. I mean, the main Hapanwo website is also a portal to all my other websites. Yeah, well, do email me uh, the details of that, Ben, and I'll d- be sure to put them in the show notes for for the listeners. Thanks. I will. I'll send you my links and stuff. Yeah, yeah Ben's bookcase is my fictional blog with all my fictional work on, and Rockall. I'm still quite proud of. I'm writing. I've not actually written a non-fiction book. Maybe I should write a sort of non-fiction book. Yeah, it sounds like you should. You, you you've done a lot of research, so you know maybe you should uh, collate that research and put it out into a book. I could do if I could, but I mean, at the moment I'm writing a fictional book about uh, the UFO issue, um, which is a, a it's like an, arago- an allegorical fiction. So it's it is fictional, but it's not really. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like that. It's it's a it's a it's an imaginary story about something very real. It's rather like George Orwell and his. Animal Farm in 1984. Yeah. They were imaginary stories, but they were about very real concepts. Okay, well, I wanted to get onto the UFO uh, issue and UFO disclosure. And, you know, let me preface it by stating the obvious. And the obvious is that the, the axiomatic scientific mainstream view is that we are, as far as we know, in the universe, completely alone. We've never found any evidence of any aliens, even microbes, from anywhere else in the universe, the galaxy, the solar system. We have used SETI to search for um, signals. We've sent probes to various places. We're very keen to send probes to other um, bodies within the solar system to try and find microscopic life to prove that life is not unique to this planet. And then, of course, there is the, the Fermi paradox, which is that if life is abundant in the universe by now, after where are we, 14 billion years, give or take, life should be everywhere and we should definitely know about it. However, there is no evidence to suggest that we've ever been visited by aliens and um, no evidence at all to suggest that there is any other life uh, that we know of in the universe. That is the official story. That's not how you see it, Ben, is it? No, although um, I, I don't necessarily... I don't necessarily explain UFO phenomenon as extraterrestrial life forms coming from other planets in our universe. Right. I think that is, um, that's what's known as the classic extraterrestrial hypothesis. I'm not necessarily a supporter of that hypothesis. Okay. Although it could, it could be true in some cases. All right. So yeah, let's start with UFOs then. And so people often report seeing strange lights in the sky and literally unidentified flying objects, you know, objects that they cannot explain. There are various videos of these. Some of them are clearly sketchy, um, you know, not Photoshop jobs, but, you know, the equivalent for video. Um, Some of them look a little bit more convincing. So, I mean, presumably you believe that they are abundant, but what's your belief? Uh, You know, what's the evidence that you've seen to suggest, you know, what, what are they? Well, what are they? I don't actually have an answer for what they are, unfortunately. I don't. Um, I know that, as you said, the actual the three-letter acronym UFO, UFO, means unidentified flying objects. In some cases, that will be an unusual aircraft. It will be um, a meteor. It will be a, a bird of some kind or a kite. Kites are very commonly um, associated, or Chinese lantern, that's the other one. Um, so, the, the, in other words, you're seeing something that is a familiar and unusual object in the sky, but you don't recognize it. Probably the majority of um, cases can be explained in that way. Sometimes you see something in the sky which does not fit into any of those 
conventional explanations that it is an irregular object. Sometimes it's very ob- this is very obvious if you have a close encounter. You actually see something very close, which you can see very clearly is not something that you would normally find in the sky. Um, now, there's, there's various different ki- types of close encounter. In some cases, the, the close encounter of the first kind, this is the Hynek scale, which a ufologist called uh, Alan J. Alan Hynek. This is when you do see something close up, which you can't recognize, but very obviously not from this world. Um, close encounter of the second kind, it leaves behind some kind of physical evidence that can be gathered and analyzed. It might uh, cause um, changes in the ground. It might cause burning, heat effects, or other things like that. Close encounter of the third kind, of course, is the title of the famous film. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, where the little creatures, little whatever's it, some kind of biological or some kind of biological entity it appears in association with the object we're seeing. So there's different types. What they are, I don't know what they are. They cannot all be explained as hysteria, illusions, weather balloons, lighthouses, and all the other things that skeptics say they are. I do not believe that they can all be explained in that way. I think there is some a real mysterious phenomena there. And there are many, many examples of people who've had encounters of things they can't explain. I've seen things myself, I think. Um, so maybe one one occasion in particular, I think I've seen something which literally defies all known explanations. And I'm, there's many examples of this. They're very common, very common indeed. Well, g- give me some examples then. Uh, well, the probably the best example from for, for which country? From United Kingdom, from USA. Um, take your pick. Uh, yeah, UK. Let's say. Yeah. Well, one of the best examples is um, is the best. The probably one of the best documented UFO incidents in the entire world is the Rendlesham Forest incident in 1980. This is when a strange, well, a series of strange objects over more than one occasion appeared in the Rendlesham Forest, which is these big woods in Suffolk near the coast. And um, these were very close to what at the time was a nuclear base. Um, the US Air Force actually had a, a garrison there, contingent. Uh, there were, these were American weapons, and they, uh, these were guarded by the U.S. Air Force Security Police. These highly trained and highly expert people went out into the woods to see these objects, and um, the, it was very had encounters. More, more than one of them had encounters with strange objects, and um, that's a that's a good example indeed. Very good example. And but was there any physical evidence gathered from that? Presumably not. Otherwise, it would have been all over the TV. Well, there were some photographs of objects in the ground. It was especially a CE2, a close encounter of the second kind. Although there was a CE3, there was one of the witnesses, a guy called Larry Warren, reported a, a close encounter of the third kind. But there was, there was increased radiation levels in certain areas of the woods. There's been long-term effects on where the CE3 took place. There's been, it's a place called Cable Green, which is like a field near the woods. There has been some long-term effects of the ground, on, effects on the ground. I should say, interestingly, what's interesting about um, this incident is the skeptics that have tried to explain it as something normal have come up with things that are far crazier than anything we could ever imagine. You know, wireless can tinfoil hat nightmares. I mean, they said things like it's a li- it's it's the Orford Nest Lighthouse, which is a lighthouse which is a few miles away on the coast. Um, it's a truckload of burning manure, which is a huge pile of. Um, it's a uh, ice cream it's a ice cream van that was stolen by joyriders Uh, it's really incredible I mean again it's you're dealing with highly trained uh, security experts here like like the like the paramedics who dealt with 
Princess Diana in the tunnel. You know, they're not going to lose their heads like that easily. It's it was there was something truly mysterious that happened there that night or those nights. Okay, well, looking at UFOs, right? If you look at something like the B two stealth bomber, now that I've just quickly looked it up on Wikipedia, and uh, its first flight was in 1989, and it was introduced into service in uh, 1997. So presumably they must have been working on that for quite some time, the American government, and therefore they must have been test flying that. Now, supposing, you know, if it was 89, so it's it's conceivable they were flying that around in the late 70s, early 80s. Now, if you'd looked up and seen that flying around in the late 70s, early 80s, you would have been blown away. It, It looks like nothing else you've seen before. It looks like an alien spaceship, basically. It certainly looks like Batman's plane. (laughs) Yeah, it does actually. Yeah, Yeah. it looks like the the Bat plane or whatever. But it it certainly is out of the ordinary, isn't it? Yeah, the B-2 stealth bomber was actually being tested for probably, like you said, a decade or so before it actually entered service when it was declassified. It was being test flown at Area 51, the famous secret base in Nevada. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's a very unusual looking aircraft. It doesn't have a tail. It's um, Now, if you saw that, you, you may well report that as a UFO. And technically, you'd be right, because it's, a, it's an object in the sky you can't identify. Right. So the point that I'm making, though, is that if that's what they were working on in the late 70s, early 80s, what on earth are they working on now? Good question. Presumably, stuff that you know we won't hear about publicly for 20 years that could be you know, almost indistinguishable from an alien craft. You know, it, it could be all sorts of... Um, stealth technology and and potentially even you know bordering on teleportation kind of stuff for all we know they've got almost unlimited budget and the greatest scientists in the world and so these ufos could surely easily be explained by military test flights of of technology that is massively beyond the public understanding or acknowledgement for for strategic military reasons oh yeah i mean the um the fact of the matter is that they do are still engaged in um, experimentation at Area 51 and similar places, um, not just the United States, but uh, Russia and other countries are in their own secret bases. Indeed, you've got to ask, well, what kind of things are they testing now? And there's a guy called Nick Cook who's, who's written a book about this, and he's, he's, done a vi- he's done two videos called The Billion Dollar Secret and UFOs, The Hidden Evidence, which you can get on YouTube. They're very worth watching. Now he speculates that possibly we we, we are we are looking at something that is being is equivalent of the stealth bomber or stealth or F seventeen from long ago. So we're looking at something that is now in the black world, which will be declassified at some point in the future. It, I'm, I don't know if I'm not sure I agree with him about the declassified at some point in the future. Quite frankly, I think maybe we're looking at stuff that they have no intention of ever declassifying. But um, yeah, I mean, it does make you wonder what's going on in the secret laboratories, especially if you consider some of the sources of some of their technology and this takes us back to 9-11 and the Hutchison effect and uh, the crash retrievals and things like that but also the Nazis and Operation Paperclip and the fact that the Nazis in the 1940s were working on these, these very sub they were working on esoteric power plants and propulsion systems and that at the end of the war basically when Nazi Germany fell the Allies moved in and divided the spoils and they, they got they got hold of all the stuff. They, I mean, they got hold of the scientists. They they they, they shared the scientists out among the uh, among the various allies. And some of those went to work at places like Area Fifty One and and 
um, the White Sands Missile Range. I mean, Werner von Braun was one of these guys. Uh, so maybe the Nazi technology actually ended up in the covert world of, of the foreign of foreign powers. Well, I mean, it, it, there's documentary evidence that it did. I mean, some of the rocket technology they were working on made it into the American, um, you, you know, nuclear technology that they have got going on now. Well, I mean, well, there's no doubt about it. I mean, the the, the rocket, the Saturn V moon rocket, the Apollo rocket, um, that was basically based on the design of the V two missile, which which raised havoc over London in the uh, in the war. Um, yeah, and and were it not for uh, the Americans stepping in and helping us win the war, or you know, you could argue winning the war for us, and taking those Nazi scientists and the technology that they were working on. They probably wouldn't have gone to the moon. Now I, I know you might perhaps <laughs> disagree <laughs> yeah, that they, they did, did. <laughs> in the well, first place. <laughs> that that is a big subject that maybe another time we might go into. But well, um, rockets in space, yeah, rockets in space, certainly, yeah, yeah. Um, and and so yeah, m- maybe there was other stuff that the Nazis were working on. I mean, I don't suppose they were particularly ahead of the Russians or the Americans. I mean, given enough money and in intelligence. You, you're basically talking about the cutting edge of technology. And I've heard crazy stories about the, um, the Nazis working on anti-gravity technology, but I, I don't know, I've, I've never seen any evidence of that. Uh, they were, I think they were ahead. I mean, from what I've seen, the, well, the evidence, there's a guy called, um, what's, uh, what's his name? I can't remember. He it said SS General, oh, what's his name? I can't remember. But anyway, he, he disappeared towards the end of the war, but he did leave some documents behind, which um, show that he, he, he claims that the Nazis were working in, in a place called the West, the Wenceslas mine, which is actually in modern day Poland. Um, they were, had, they had a, a secret laboratory in that mine. Now you can't get in there now because basically it's, it's basically the, the entrance is sealed up. They blew it up so that they either caved in. So you can't get in now. But they were working on something they called Die Glock in German, which means the bell. And this was something which involved the use of mercury. So for some reason, mercury was involved in its production, in its, its operations, which did seem to have some effect on, on the gravitational field, surrounding gravitational field. And what's interesting is that um, just after the war's end, a U-boat was captured in the Strait of Malacca near Singapore. And it had on board a cargo of mercury in barrels. And um, that, that's a question. I mean, that's not evidence to suggest necessarily that the bell was real. Yeah, maybe they were just making some thermometers, you know. Yeah, exactly. Maybe they, maybe Hitler got, got to Argentina and planned to open up a new business in the medical, <laughs> in the clinical <laughs> instrument world. I don't know. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it is a strange thing. About that. I mean, so there is a, there's also a, a crashes of several objects that have been said to be extraterrestrial, which are actually more likely to be esoteric technology, like the, the Kecksburg incident in Pennsylvania in 1965. I mean, on the, on the question of whether the, the entire UFO phenomenon can be explained in this way, I don't think it can. Uh, it can explain some of it, though. It certainly can explain some of what we've seen in the sky today. It could, this could be covert projects, man-made things right here on Earth. Others, it's questionable, I think. Okay, well, we can't talk about UFOs without touching at least briefly on Roswell. What what is your reading of what went on there? Something very strange happened there in July 1947. Um, something came down which was not made by any um, organization in the United States or any of her allies. It was retrieved. Uh, a bit of highly secretive operation. 
and um, there are several witnesses to, to what was going on. And um, the secret remains to this day, and there has been a, many, many attempts to suppress and to confuse the narrative with uh, false revelations. Whether the, the mystery of what was gathered, what was found at Roswell will ever be revealed, I hope it will if we get disclosure and this is what the exopolitics movement is about. I don't, I don't know. We'll have to see. But definitely, it's a very, very interesting case indeed. Extremely interesting. It's rather, it's almost as significant as Reynoldson Forest. In fact, the problem with Roswell was, was though, that basically nothing was done. There was no research done at all until 30 years after it happened. When one of the witnesses approached Stanton Friedman in, in 1977, he actually went up to Stan Friedman, who's this guy who brought it to the world, and he said, I'll tell you my story. It's okay. When did this happen? It's all 30 years ago. Right, you know what happens after 30 years? Evidence gets lost, human memory starts to fail, things like that. So I kind of feel Roswell's almost been done to death. But there is definitely something weird. Something weird did happen. It's very tantalizing. Because something weird happened, and I don't know what. What's your gut feeling? Was it aliens? I mean, that's what I wanted to kind of end on. Aliens, extraterrestrial intelligence from other planets and other you know, solar systems and potentially even dimensions. Um, it's, I think it was something like that. Yeah. My, my gut feeling is it was something like that. Now, whether, like I said, I don't necessarily claim the, the classic extraterrestrial hypothesis is true, but these were, these were, it's just something created by an intelligent civilization from beyond the earth in whichever direction, including the fourth dimension to other dimensions. Basically, that's, that's what, that's what I'd say about it. Uh, and so what about the idea that we have long since been infiltrated by alien civilizations and that they've hidden Somehow, whether it be through shape shifting or you know uh, higher dimensions that we don't understand, and are pulling the strings, and the fact that you know, if you take for a given for a second ideas like the New World Order and the Illuminati, I mean, I don't know how much credence to give those ideas, but it makes perfect sense to me that the world is a business and the rich people are in charge of that business. There are bosses and there are workers. And yet, you know, I don't think that's even conspiracy theory to say that, that there are rich people in charge of the, the planet through the, the uh, oil industry and um, big pharma and the arms industry and stuff like that. But, you know, what do you think about this idea that they might be aliens among us? I think it's, um, it's quite plausible. It's, it's, there's a lot of uh, people who are saying that they've had encounters with these beings. So I know somebody who is, is involved. I know several people, actually, who have have encounters and are involved in some way with this kind of thing. Definitely. I think there's a lot to be said for the fact that some people are part alien themselves. People in, who appear in human bodies actually are part extraterrestrial themselves. There are fa families who have encounters with beings over many generations, including in a, in a reproductive sense and a spiritual sense. So you think that there's potentially alien DNA mixed with human DNA? I mean, that's a, a popular theory that flies in the face of uh, conventional evolutionary theory that there, there were apes something not too unlike a chimpanzee were you know roaming around and then aliens came down interbred with them and uh, out popped humans uh, mm. i mean it, that seems a bit far-fetched and ridiculous to me but i mean does it to you the interbreeding thing i mean i do i do wonder i mean this is and again this is a rec another recurring theme in mythology Mythology from all over the world talks about. Um, sometimes they're called the sons of God and angels. Yeah, they come. They're the Nephilim and or the, the the Elohim and the Nephilim in the Bible. 
to come down and actually do. I mean, the, the phrase in the Bible is that the the sons of the gods, the, they, they, they saw the daughters of men and took off them many wives who gave them many heirs, which means it does imply there's some kind of reproductive element. So that is a possibility. But I mean, it could also be some people say that the human race is genetically engineered by extraterrestrials. Now, in terms of biology, I mean, humans are, obviously, we're a type of ape. We are a primate. We're an unusual primate, though. I mean, our brain size, our intelligence, the fact that we walk upright, so we have usable hands. We're the only ape that actually does that, that walks upright all the time. Well, not necessarily. Well, all the time, yeah, but they... Yeah, they don't climb trees. We're the only ape that's a ground dweller that doesn't climb trees. But never climbs trees. Yeah, but, I mean, look at chimps they do sometimes walk on their hind legs when uh, you know it's necessary to do that they are capable of doing it they're capable of doing it yeah, but they don't do it all the time yeah um, yeah i mean there's um, unless you take into account i mean another thing i'm interested in is bigfoot and stuff like that it could be because bigfoot the the a lot of the descriptions of bigfoot say that it's an upright creature and it's an ape that walks upright so it could be we're not the only one <laughs> so it's, so that's a possibility so um it's a it's a subject i've not looked into in detail but um i do uh do take it as a possibility seriously. I mean, I don't, I don't know specifically, but it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me. I think that these creatures, whatever they are, have do seem to have some kind of involvement in matters on Earth. They have an interest in us. They are present. They're not out there. They're down here, and they are in some way. They seem to have a. It seems to be to quote one author, an alien enterprise. This, this planet. Well, what does that mean then? That's it. We have to read it. But it's called Earth and Alien Enterprise by Timothy Good. He goes into many, many examples of the kind of thing we've been talking about, about contact with extraterrestrials and some very persuasive stories about uh, people who have encounters with, with beings and they, the beings have been involved in quite high level areas of government and things like that. Okay. I know I, I did say the last thing we talk about is aliens, but I suppose it's somewhat related. You, you, I've heard you talk about and, and I've seen you write about disclosure. What exactly is disclosure in this sense? Disclosure with a capital D is the frank and full admission by authorities that there is an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race. Um, now, there's, this is a campaign. It's mostly a political campaign going on by several people, most notably uh, Dr. Stephen Greer and Stephen Bassett, who was actually a guest on my radio show the, uh, in my last week, this previous week, which was interesting. They are campaigning to get the government to declassify what it knows about extraterrestrials. That's what disclosure is. And is that likely to happen anytime soon? Um, I <laughs> think the rational side of me says that it's impossible to ask. The kind of disclosure they're talking about cannot be done. The political structures of this world cannot absorb a revelation of this magnitude. And maybe they're designed that way. But there's another part of me that really, really finds the whole idea so appealing. That I can't let it go. It's a really strange, it's a really strange kind of conflict within me. So I'm very much involved in the exopolitical world. Um, I'm Steve Bassett. I've interviewed him many times, and I'm always interested in what he's doing. I think to myself, what if? What if I'm wrong? What if it can be done? It's just a, such an enthralling proposition that we could just have someone saying, "Oh, by the way, aliens are real. All these things are real. You know, we're going to deal with it. We're going to declassify the whole thing." I keep saying that that's going to be the last thing I talk about, but you keep reminding me of really interesting things to ask you about. I remember around the Olympics in 2012 here in London uh, and the build-up to that, there, there was talk of uh, a major event. You know, It seemed logical that it would be a terrorist event. I mean, that uh, 
it's a prime target for terrorists if you believe that such people exist and it's not false flag. But, you know, I had a real feeling inside me that something was going to go wrong and I really didn't want to be here. I was forced to be here for work and because I live here and I, I couldn't afford to get out of, uh, out of London for three weeks. But um, one of the things that I had heard about, one of the more extreme uh, predictions would be that there would be an alien invasion, but that alien invasion would be false flag. It would be fake, you know, produced by the TV and potentially holograms and lasers and that sort of thing. I mean, is there any possibility in your mind that that could actually happen? Well, I mean, the, the possibility is there. I mean, the technology to create images in the sky is there. I mean, this this came out, there were several, the, the actual source of this possibility is very interesting. There was a guy called Rick Clay, who since died. I mean, he, he's a young guy, he died. Um, and a man called Ian R. Crane, who's a, who's a very good researcher. He's, he's very much in the anti-fracking movement today. He went public and said that there's a possibility of something like this being done at the Olympics. And the, the reasons he gave, there were many, many different um, factors he thought would lead to this being a major false flag event. And like yourself, I mean, I was very, very worried. I mean, I, I really, I mean, I know some people in London who got the hell, who did get, who were able to leave London uh, and did for the period of the Olympics. People said, I mean, why don't you go and see the Olympics? You're not going to get another chance because they're not in this country very often. And I said, no, I don't want to go. <laughs> I really didn't feel safe there. But it didn't happen. I mean, everything went without a hitch. And it, to be honest, it was a major relief at the end of it. I, I was, I really was kind of expecting something. So were many other people. Maybe there was something planned and they aborted it because so many people were talking about it. That's a possibility. Well, I mean, it seems that if this stuff is true about the Illuminati and the New World Order and the fact that they want to have this, this globalist agenda of one world government, one world army, one world currency, and, you know, one world rule of law, a way to do that would be in reaction to an alien invasion that we somehow staved off. You know, these aliens travel across interstellar distances uh, and, and then somehow with our puny technology that's, you know, a couple of thousand years old, we managed to get rid of them. Mm. Well, there's a little teaser here. I mean, this is going to be a part of the plot of my new book that I'm writing. Aha. Yeah. It's, <laughs> um, yeah. If people are stunned and shocked, like it's like nine eleven, over probably probably even more worse. If people are in shock and frightened, as I would be, as anyone would be, are we going to ask that question? Well, is it real or is it is it not? Are, are we going to be in a position where we can ask that, or are we just going to say, "Help us, help"? You know what I mean? Panic. Yeah. <laughs> or, or are we going to find ourselves fourteen years later, and the only people questioning it are in a tiny minority? Yeah, or um, we may be living under a, maybe an authoritarian world government as a as, as what David Icke calls a solution to the problem, the problem, the action solution to uh, this this threat from the from the out from out there in space. It could have been done. Of course, it could happen. I mean, you could have uh, another incident in which there is a where the threat of extraterrestrial attack um, is justified creating a, a new world order. I mean, maybe disclosure with a capital D could actually be this. It could be that there will be, um, a, there will be a revelation from the government, but the revelation, surprise, surprise, oh, by the way, they're real, but they're nasty. They're really bad. Whether they may say, the government may say that, even if it's not true. People like Stephen Hawking are already saying that if there are aliens, the, the chances are they're probably nasty. Well, he says that, yeah. I mean, well, Hawking is, 
Hawkins is one of these guys who, who knows so much about one subject and very little about any other. So I would, um, Hawkins warning against putting transmissions out into space because we don't want to draw attention to ourselves, he says. Um, so, I mean, it's a lot of science fiction. I mean, science fiction covers many different things, but some, some of it, films like Independence Day and War of the Worlds, these things all came out within a few years of each other, and they were very much on this theme of big bad aliens out there. We need to, we need to do something, we need to unite to, to protect the world from them. And War of the Worlds was actually based on a book that was written 100 years earlier. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost like an archetype that, that keeps recurring. I mean, surely that's just an imagination thing. I mean, based on the history of the Earth, any time technologically superior people have ever gone anywhere new, they've pretty much raped, pillaged, and murdered the the natives, haven't they? I mean, just look at South yeah. America, Africa, you know, pretty much everywhere. America. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea is that if, if, if two cultures come into contact of very, very different technological levels, the, 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 the culture with the lower technology will be destroyed. It will be absorbed and destroyed. And that has happened in, on, in human culture, certainly. So, I mean, if, if, if disclosure happens, I mean, it could, it could be what if it's real? I mean, what if there really are bad aliens out there? I mean, aliens do bad things. I mean, there's the abduction phenomenon, which is, in some cases is very, but some people have very joyous, um, almost like a spiritual type contact with extraterrestrials. For other people, it's horrific. So you believe that that's real? Then you you really believe people are, are taken up in ships and yeah, people the, the abduction phenomenon is real. Yeah, it is. Um, and it varies from many many people. I mean, there's some of the aliens are good, some are some are bad, some subject people to horrific experiences. If there are nasty aliens doing that sort of thing, then what can you, and and what and they can fly through our air defences and they can evade radar and they can make themselves invisible and things like that, then. That's scary. Well, yeah, we haven't got a hope, have we? Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's, um, we might be like a, an Amazonian Indian who suddenly comes face to face with a heavily armed soldier with a rifle. Yeah, the conquistadors and all that. Which has happened, yeah, which has happened, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it would be like magic. I mean, it'll be, it'll be, it, technology, higher technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah, I've, he- I've heard Dawkins say that a few times. It's Arthur C. Clarke who was calling that phrase science fiction yeah yeah it's uh dawkins uh quotes him quite a lot with that yeah yeah good old dawkins <laughs> your <laughs> mate well ben it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you i, you I could you literally know, over two hours man <laughs> i know yeah i, well, I, I can't could... fly <laughs> hey ben before you leave i'm sure we're gonna have listeners who are like super interested in this stuff do you mind taking just a couple of minutes to give a shout out to some books to interest people or maybe some conferences you know about that other people don't oh absolutely i mean there's a conference coming up in at Holmfirth in West Yorkshire next the weekend um next weekend the 19th and 20th of September there's still some tickets available it's the UFO Truth Magazine Conference 2015 details at ufotruthmagazine.co.uk and there's the Probe Conference well, I'm speaking at the Probe Conference which is uh, October the 10th and 11th um which should be really really good that's in um Lytham St Anne's Lancashire uh, UK. These are all UK events, unfortunately. If you, if you, it'd be a long way for guys in the states, obviously. And there's several others uh, going on. Um, there's the Exopolitics Conference the weekend after, which I'm the MC of. Um, that's the 17th and, and 18th. So please do get to those if you can. They'll be really good. Uh, and in terms of literature, not necessarily just on the Exopolitics stuff, but I mean, w- what's some good places to start? Definitely David Icke. I recommend any of David Icke's books, especially um, The Biggest Secret. 
Children of the Matrix, David I Guide to the Global Conspiracy. There's so many excellent work that man's done. He was very, very important to me. I mean, I, I feel I've moved on from him now. I don't really agree with a lot of what he says, but but he was a very, very important ingredient in my development, I think, as, as an individual. Yeah, and I mean, 9-11 seems to be a very important event for both sides of things. The skeptics see it as very important, and the, the Tinfoil Hat Brigade see it as kind of like the gateway, or, you know, at least that's my impression of it. Um, you know, there are a lot of YouTube videos about 9-11, like loose change and stuff. Uh, I mean, it, a YouTube video is free and easy to, um, to watch. So, I mean, as a, an introduction to this tinfoil hat world, can, can you mention a YouTube video or two that might, um, you know, be getting people involved and interested in this? On the subject of 9-11 specifically? Well, well, not necessarily. I mean, just like, you know, in um, what, what's this called? Parapolitical thought, you know, the, the idea yeah. that... Um, General that, conspiracy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think um, a very, very interesting chapter to start off with is Ian R. Crane. Ian R. Crane. If you Google him, there's hundreds of videos that he's done, and he's brilliant. He, he, he covers a wide variety of subjects like I do. Um, and he goes into it in detail. He's an enthralling, very eloquent speaker. Um, and he is also has been, I've, he's also taught me a lot, that guy. He really has. As far as 9-11 specifically goes, uh, anything by Dr. Judy Wood, definitely, or Andrew Johnson, those guys, they know. They're the ones who got into the nuts and bolts of the 9-11 situation. They're the guys who go into the evidence of it. Yeah, I mean, what do you think about loose change, the, the most famous one? Um, they make some point, good points that are good. Um, those, those films are getting a bit dated now, though. They, they have not really kept up with the advances in, in the research that's been done. They say nothing about Dr. Judy Wood and her discoveries, for instance. So um, they're kind of, I think things have moved on from loose change, actually. Also, all of our listeners should remember to attend the Hollow Earth and Flat Earth conferences so Ben can tell you that you're an idiot. So. <laughs> I'll be picketing us. I'll be there with a the placard saying, go home, I'm a skeptic. <laughs> well, Ben, hopefully we can have you on. I know you're a very busy man, and I really, really appreciate you taking the time to, you know, so much time to speak to us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for coming on, Ben. You're welcome, Isaac. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, as soon as this is uh, uploaded, as soon as you've got this uploaded, I'll post the link on her panel so, so my readers can listen to it. Great. All right. Well, uh, yeah, I uh, hopefully we'll speak to you soon then. Oh, no, no, it's getting late. Oh, time for bed. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had a really good evening. I've really enjoyed it. I really have. No night. Night. Take care. Well, there you have it. It was quite an epic chat, wasn't it? We talked about all sorts of things over the two and a bit hours, and uh, it was pretty enlightening. Um, I, I felt like I could have maybe asked him some tougher questions, but you know, I asked him a few skeptical questions, and the thing is, I kind of believe some of it, or I entertain some of these ideas, some of them not so much. Uh, we didn't get into ghosts and the paranormal and stuff. The, I, we could have spoken to him for another two hours, like we said last time. And maybe at some point um, I'll get him back on the show if anyone's interested in hearing more from him. I won't be doing any feedback again, as I said last time. We'll save that for the next one, which will be episode 17. But to be honest, I don't know when that's going to be because I'm just so busy at the moment, not only with work stuff, but with podcasting. Because I've started the Pi podcast, I kind of said to Isaac when he was talking to me about starting the Pi podcast, or at least a podcast about the Raspberry Pi, that 
once we did that, it had pretty much be curtains for the JRS podcast. And we didn't do one for ages and it got to the point where people were asking us. And so I decided that we should do one. And then I thought it'd be nice to speak to Ben. And so this one's come out, but I, I don't know. I'm just so busy. I've, I'm feeling close to burnout really because I've just got so much on and um, the things that I can't really talk about now, but um, Luddites is going to get a lot more stressful and a lot more work over the next month or so. Um, I suppose I can talk about it. Basically, Paddy's having the month off, including not doing any of the news and feedback and stuff. So me and Jesse now have to do that. So it's it means that I've just got loads more work with that. So don't be surprised if this is the last you hear from me on this show for a little while. It hasn't gone away. I don't think this show will ever go away until I die. There's a nice thought for you, eh? Because it's kind of my show, isn't it, where I talk about whatever. So... It, if ever there's something that doesn't fit into another show, there's someone I want to talk to or something I want to discuss, then it's probably going to end up on this one. So just stay subscribed or follow me on Twitter or Google Plus or whatever. If you want to send in some feedback, either joerestpodcast at gmail.com or podcast at joerest.com. Uh, I'm not sure if I said that right last time. Whatever, anything at joerest.com or joerestpodcast at gmail.com. I really shouldn't have changed it. I should have just kept it. Everyone just keeps emailing the, uh, the Gmail one. The, the only reason the, I set up the other one is so that um, Isaac could get them as well, rather than me having to manually forward them. But it doesn't really matter. I can just do that. We don't get that much email anyway. Um, so, yeah, until next time, hopefully, I mean, if we get loads of feedback from the Ben thing, and I've had a little bit so far, then we might do a shorter show where we just cover that feedback so i don't know but anyway that's enough rambling from me this evening who knows when we'll be back but until then see you later (laughs) 